The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network presents Setting the Record Straight, where various Christian Reconstructionist pastors seek to understand and dissect the issues that are plaguing the church today, from the pulpit to the pew. All right, that said, I want to talk about worldview foundations, okay? So that's my task for this session. If you need to get up and stretch at any point, I will not be offended because I will stretch your brain. Um, so there, it's kind of a lot, So, but, but absorb it. If you are a note taker, I certain things, make it easy for you to write them down because I think they're important and I want you to know them. So uh, worldview foundations, they say that the uh, best sermons contain three parts. Uh, The first part is like an introduction uh, in which you explain what it is you're going to tell your listeners. And then the second part is where you tell them what you you want them to know, right? You tell them ahead of time in your intro what you're going to say. Then you tell them. And the third part is reminding them what you just said. That's the best sermon. That's what I'm I'm told. And so I'm going to try to do that. So in this first session... I really want to get you thinking about worldview and then kind of get you thinking about some of the problems that we face in society at large and then also some of the problems connected to the challenges we have in in church life and so on. Um, And after that, I kind of want to just introduce to you the covenant model as shown in Scripture and give you some basic foundational principles as it pertains to worldview. So I just told you what I'm going to do, all right? So we're going to do it, all right? Now, assuming you know Christ, and more importantly, that Christ knows you, I want to ask you a series of questions, okay? So think about them. I'm going to throw a lot quickly, but just, you know, I want to stimulate your brain for a moment. How do you view the world? How do you view culture? How do you view the Bible, the Word of God, what's your, what's your view of Scripture? Um, how, do you, how do you view this book's engagement with the world around you, the culture around you? How, uh, how seriously do you take the Great Commission? How seriously do you take the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit and his task of empowering us towards holiness and righteousness in the world? How do you view your role in the local church and the church universal? How do you view how do you view your church's role in society? Let's back it up some. How do you view yourself? How do you view your fellow man? How do you view your family? How do you view the state, civil government? How do you view Washington, D.C. What, what do you think about the role of, of the state as it pertains to King Jesus? Maybe you don't think about the role of the state. <clears throat> then I have to ask, well, why don't you? <laughs> How do you view the mission of the church? And that is the application of all of Christ for all of life. That's our mission statement at Colwood. It's obvious that I'm not going to be able to give you the, you know, the amount of time you would need to think through each of these questions. Um, in, a, in a reasonable manner, but I at least want to get, <clears throat> give you a kind of a handle of where I'm going. Whenever we talk about the gospel of Jesus Christ and how it applies, okay, because it does apply, it isn't just out there, it applies, 
Um, we are confronted with all of those questions. The questions themselves are inescapable. Um, you, you have to answer them or, or you risk being entirely irrelevant to the world around you. If you want gospel-centered leadership, it starts with the gospel. Answering these questions is a non-negotiable. If you don't want to answer them, then you will find yourself completely irrelevant, both to the world and the people around you, and that's sad. Which is to say, if you don't have a consistent biblical answer to, to those questions, you won't have a biblical worldview. So here's my definition of worldview, and I'll, I'll come back to it periodically throughout the night. So I'll repeat it so you can write it down. Um, <clears throat> well, it goes like this. <clears throat> a worldview is a collection of presupposed truths. A worldview is a collection of presupposed truths. through which we fit everything we believe. A worldview is a collection of presupposed truths through which we fit everything we believe. And by which we interpret and discern A worldview is a collection of presupposed truths through which we fit everything we believe and by which we interpret and discern the world and everything in the world. I'll say it one more time. A worldview is a collection of presupposed truths through which we fit everything we believe and by which we interpret and discern the world and everything in the world. <clears throat> um, I'll read that again later, so don't worry if you didn't get all of that. Now, in a, in a general manner of speaking, only the Christian worldview, okay, hear me out, only the Christian worldview gives you logical, rational, and consistent definitions for everything you see in the world. Only the Christian worldview gives you logical, rational, and consistent definitions for everything you see in the world. All other worldviews, all other rival worldviews um, that stem from the cults or even false religions like Islam and Buddhism um, or even atheism and agnosticism, any of those, all other worldviews are incoherent and inconsistent. Okay? They're incoherent and inconsistent. If you want consistency in your life, I'm assuming you, know, you, you love the gospel so much you want to actually live like it, right? So you want consistency in your life. If you want that consistency, you must hold to the scriptures and you must hold on to Christ. Now, I don't, I don't have time to unpack all that, so I'm going to presuppose it and kind of move on from there. I don't think I have to argue with all of you here that the Bible is the word of God, that it's true, it's inspired, it's without error. If you wanna argue with me about that later, go ahead, I'll take you to task, let's do it. Um, <clears throat> but I'm gonna presuppose that I don't have to argue that. You, you, we're starting from that foundation, okay? So in order to be a Christian, you must know this part of your faith. Only Christianity can be consistent. Um, if we do not start with the creator God as he is revealed in his fully and finally authoritative self-revelation, that's what the Bible is, we have no justifiable reason to believe anything. 
okay? We must start with God. Otherwise, okay, if, if we're just, you know, highly evolved apes, right? If, if, if we're just bags of meat who think things because your brain has gas, If that's all we are, then we're in trouble. Only the Christian worldview is consistent because only the Christian worldview aligns with reality, okay? Like, (laughs) we're gonna deal with things as they are, reality, the world, what it is, why it is, and so on. So a worldview, I'll read it again, is is a collection of presupposed truths through which we fit everything we believe and by which we interpret and discern the world and everything in the world. Now, it's impossible for someone to not have a worldview, okay? Um, you, you may walk into here tonight and thought, well, I guess I didn't know I had one. You do, everyone has one. A worldview is like a pair of glasses and everyone has a pair. It, it's what we assume about nature, knowledge, ethics and truth and all these other things. Things like uh, laws of logic, right? Things like um, reasoning and and argumentation, rules for those types of things. How do you know you actually have a a solid argument? How can you verify its veracity and so on? Um, If you don't have the Christian glasses on, you can't see everything the, the way God intends. So hence the reason why there is mass confusion in the public square regarding sexual ethics and so on. It's a war of ideas and it's a war of definitions. Doug Wilson in his book, I highly recommend this book, Same Sex Mirage, he argues that one of the biggest um, issues that we see in our culture is all of it boils down to definitions. How are we gonna define stuff? Marriage and gender and everything else. At a, at a foundational level, there are only two worldviews, okay? That's it. There are only two worldviews, Christian and non-Christian. That's all there is. And only one of them is ultimately true. Um, worldview tells you all about the nature of man, all about man's responsibilities before God, um, the nature of good and evil, uh, things like law and justice and jurisprudence and all these other things. We must see everything in the world through what I call a theoepistemology. I didn't just say a bad word. Theos is what we get God from in Greek. Epistemology is a theory of knowledge knowing things because God, in other words. God, knowing things because God has revealed himself. So God has ultimate, infinite, inexhaustible um, knowledge, and we know things because he has given it to us. Go ahead and turn to 2 Corinthians 10. We're gonna flip to a few different places tonight, but we're gonna start here. 2 Corinthians chapter 10. We're going to see this this worldview at work. 2 Corinthians 10, verse 3. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. Verse 5 is what I want you to focus on. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God And take every thought captive to obey Christ, being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. Um, 
We destroy arguments, verse five, and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. Great verse to underline. The Apostle Paul says that we're to take down, we're to refute, um, we're to destroy arguments and ideas and opinions, taking them captive as if in war, and we make them obey Christ, he says. So this is military language, and we don't have carnal weapons, but that's not to say we don't have any weapons at all. Um, we're, we're not anarchists, we're not violent, that's not our calling, um, but we will defend ourselves if need be. What Paul is getting at is that there are rival worldviews in the public square, and the gospel of Jesus knocks them all down. So th- there are towers and strongholds, these intellectual arguments, right? I, it's like when I hear a British person speak, I, they're so much smarter, like immediately. <laughs> So you got Richard Dawkins, an atheist, who like woos people because he has this wonderful accent. But he's a fool. Um, according to scripture, he, you know, the fool says in his heart, there is no God, Psalm, Psalms. So there, there are all these arguments. There's these vain curiosities that the world will propose against the gospel message. Name it, whether it's evolution, um, naturalistic worldviews, whatever, paganism to the nth degree, it doesn't matter. Um, Those things are destroyed by the gospel. And so when the gospel is preached and the biblical worldview is defended, all of those things are destroyed. So sinful man comes up with an idea, thinks he's cute, and then the gospel just tears it down. So, but, but we're not just destroying stupid opinions, though that is part of it. We are bringing people's thoughts under the lordship of Christ. So any idea, any thought, any postulation, any theory, any proposition, any conjecture, any idea or concept that does not have its foundation in a biblical worldview, know this, it's not in a position of neutrality. It is hostile to Christianity. So our worldview is founded upon the scriptures and the rock of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has all authority. Um, All other worldviews are phony and they must be torn down. So I'm working with the assumption that the Bible alone is the standard of truth. I'm also working with the assumption that only the Christian worldview gives you coherent meaning for everything in life. So remember, a worldview, your worldview, it's a collection of presupposed truths, assumptions that you work with. Everybody works with assumptions. Even if the staunchest atheist tells you, well, no, I don't have any assumptions. Yes, you do, and you've got to find them and so on. But, but that's what a worldview is, and we view everything through it. What we believe comes through those presupposed truths, and then we interpret and we discern the world and everything in the world. Now, having said all that, <clears throat> let's look at what happens when we lack a firm foundation. I want to start by looking at the various foundational issues that we face in society at large. If I were to ask you, which issues you think we are facing in society, what might you say? Just think about it for a minute. What are the most pressing needs of the hour? One of the biggest problems we face, are you ready? Statism. If Jesus isn't Lord over the state, the state becomes Lord. If Jesus isn't Lord over Caesar, then Caesar becomes Lord. Statism is this belief that civil government is the final authority, not Jesus. We'll talk about more of that later on. But a growing civil government that has moved past God's declared lines of demarcation is a growing problem. 
Um, debt is a problem in our country. Unjust wars is another problem. Fiat currency and inflation are problems, right? Just print more money. Oh yeah, that'll work. Um, we are facing levels of tyranny and oppression the founding fathers would have never, ever dreamt of or wanted. So Christianity, just so you know, our worldview is diametrically opposed to statism, communism, you know, Karl Marx and his whole system. It, that, that doesn't work. You can't wed the two together. Just It doesn't work. The Romans didn't care that the early Christians worshiped Jesus. They didn't care. They cared that they refused to worship Caesar. Jesus was just one of the thousands of gods in their view, um, but when the Christians took seriously the first of the Ten Commandments, problems arose, right? Those intolerant Christians, by the way, I view that as an honorary title. <clears throat> yes, we are intolerant of false worship. We love the commandments of God. At any rate, not only is a bloated civil government and virt with virtually unlimited and unchecked authority a problem, the breakdown of family, how many thought that when I asked the question? The breakdown of family is a tremendous problem. Um, marriage was declared by the Supreme Court to mean whatever they want it to mean. You know, circles are now squares and two plus two means whatever you want it to mean. So, so literally the black robes in D.C. usurped the divine law by creating artificial law out of thin air. The growing problem, it is a problem, of homosexuality and gender confusion. All of those things are ripping at the foundations of family. So between immoral uh, legislation, sexual immorality, the growing sin of the abortion holocaust, the state is actually creating more problems than they are solving. So that noise you hear frequently is the train wreck that is our federal government. So that's society at large. I'm going to talk more about Jesus and the state and all that in um, the second session. What about the church? If you, were to, uh, if you were to ask me what the top three pro problems we are facing in the church as, and, I'm, and I, when I say church, I don't mean Roman Catholicism. I mean the genuine, true church, um, evangelicals and so on, Protestants in particular, if you were to ask me what, what those problems are, you might be surprised at what I would say. Three things, I just picked three, are contributing to the cultural decay that you are witnessing around you. Number one, <clears throat> pietism. Pietism. Number two, just said it, statism. You might even call it state worship. Number three, Dualism. Pietism, statism, dualism. Dualism in the form of a two-kingdom theology. Are you surprised by those? Because some of you might have thought, well, you know what the problem is? They don't sing the old hymns anymore. <laughs> or our biggest problem, let me tell you, the carpet color. Okay, yeah, those are problems. I, I literally know of a church in Ohio. My pastor growing up, he was a part of it. The church split over the um, size of water heater they bought. Like, not an exaggeration. It's ridiculous. Someone should get smacked for that, I think. <laughs> <laughs> 
Let's go through them each real quick. Pietism. Pietism is the belief that only the spiritual matters and the earthly material stuff doesn't matter. So get rid of your iPhone. <laughs> I, I wrote a lengthy article on my blog about pietism. You can go there and, and read that if you like. Um, JasonGarwood.com is that, and you can, you can search it there. Um, in short, <clears throat> pietism. Pietism is kind of the spiritual onlyists. That's who they are, the spiritual onlyists, um, spiritual onlyism, if you want to call it. That, all of that pervades Christian thinking. It's a philosophy that devalues and undervalues the material, and so it kind of puts it here, and then it elevates the spiritual. So we're not talking about pious acts of righteousness, right? Your friend was sick, you took him a meal. That's, we're not talking about pious acts of righteousness. We're talking about a system, a philosophy that is built on the false notion of sacred over here and secular over here, okay? And, and and I fight this battle. Our church is 130 years old. So we, ha we don't have any 130-year-olds, but um, we have some that have been in there a long, long, long time, and they kind of have their, 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 their lingo, right, their culture. Uh, any, any of you who um, attend One Life, did you, do, you, do you ever call this a sanctuary? Ah, good for you. We don't call it a sanctuary. But in my neck of the woods, I'm literally in the woods, by the way, and Carol, <clears throat> in my neck of the woods, uh, I had to literally put auditorium on it, on the sign, and people still call it a sanctuary. And, and there's presuppositions there, okay? I'm not trying to just fight over words. There are presuppositions. God is more present in the sanctuary than when I just leave and go home. That's bad theology, but pietism is that type of thinking. We're supposed to just, you know, go in the corner, read our Bibles, pray really, really hard, and hope that God zaps us off the planet sooner than later. It's the belief that, that only spiritual activities are important, so don't take your job too seriously. Don't even take your family and raising your kids too seriously, because we're getting out of here, folks. It's the view that there are Christians that are kind of, you know, just Christians over here, sorry, friends, but... And then there are, you know, purpose-driven Christians over here. You guys are amazing. <laughs> you know, we have regular run-of-the-mill Christians, right? Just ordinary, right? Y'all just look relaxed. You're ordinary people. But then over here, we have the radical prayer of Jabez, new kind of Christian Christians <laughs> on the other side. Pietism is a deadly worldview that literally castrates Christianity. Pietism takes on many forms, but much of it is rooted in, in separation from the world. Asceticism, right? Man-made traditions and philosophies and practices of mysticism. So if you really want to be a radical, emergent super-Christian, you better stay in your prayer closet. Forget the world. Inevitably, pietism leads to legalism, the belief that works somehow gain the favor of God, whether it's before justification or after justification. So run from pietism. Don't relegate your Christian life to personal, private. Make it public, and dare I say, make it loud. Because I make some people nervous on Facebook. Because I don't mind a controversy here and there. But Jesus didn't, you know, gather his disciples. All right, go and hide and try to make disciples. 
The second problem, statism. Um, I don't want to be too repetitive because we're going to talk more later, but so many Christians have a very unhealthy view of politics. Um, a lot of it's politics rooted in the moral majority of Falwell and so on uh, <clears throat> instead of scripture. Let me help you here, okay? I'll just say this. If you are hated at the same time by both Democrats and Republicans, you are doing something right, okay? Um, just my little pro tip, that's free, okay? Our aim is to glorify God Right? And some of you know what John Piper says and enjoy him forever. That's the Westminster Shorter Catechism, right? Question one. Here's my version. Our aim is to glorify God and make everyone else upset about it. <laughs> Jesus' kingdom is much better. It's much, much more just and righteous than what the donkey and the elephant show give us. So put that on a coffee mug. In all honesty, <clears throat> in all honesty, if we would let the scriptures speak to the issues of our time, we would see a whole lot of things change. But alas, many just kind of want to hide behind the beast that is our government and look to her for salvation. The problem with statism that I outlined previously is that it has infiltrated our 501c3s to the point that we just don't want to apply the Bible to the issues of life, to the issues of civil government. It's too controversial. Don't you dare talk about that or something like that. I preached a series last fall called Politics and Religion, and I thought, well, babe, I might lose my job, but we're going to go for it. <clears throat> and, you know, it worked through, you know, worked itself out, but it's sad that we can't have that conversation. There's too much um, vitriol, and there's too much anger that goes behind it. All right, so that was pietism, statism. The third thing, and that, again, that's not to say there are only three, but the third thing is the issue of dualism or the radical two kingdom people, okay? Don't make radical, don't equate radical with like jihadism, okay? Two kingdom theology. God's kingdom is up there and it's doing great. Man's kingdom is down here and those two don't ever interact. Uh, it's a complete misunderstanding of what Jesus said about his kingdom not being of this world that is not to say that his kingdom has nothing to do with this world. It simply means that Christ's authority originates from heaven and that no man on earth gives him authority. I don't know if you guys got to that part in John. Yeah, I know you're working through John. Yeah. The dualism of our churches has castrated our efforts at being engaged in the world. Those three things have literally cut us off from being missionally engaged, being active. It's sad. It's sad. When you go to an abortion mill and minister and, and preach the gospel and try to rescue babies, and someone looks at it and thinks, man, that's some, that's some wild activism there. Now, no, that's Christianity, friends. It's not activism. Christianity is activism. It's not a second thing. But the two kingdom stuff messes all that up. Pastors who, who teach their congregants to hide in the bomb shelter because it's, you know, it's all going to hit the fan they're not doing biblical exegesis. Two kingdom people believe in, believe in Christ's kingdom, absolutely, but they don't believe it in the here and now. In fact, as much as I love Dr. John MacArthur, and, I, and I've criticized him on that podcast you're referring to, his erroneous and egregious statement about Christ being right now, quote, involuntary exile. That's where Jesus is at now. He's in voluntary exile. 
makes me frustrated. But alas, this is what dualism does to you. It forgets that Christ bought this world with his death on the cross and that the deed to the place is signed in the Lamb's blood. So when the church refuses to participate in the now present kingdom of God in the world, the church is impotent, unable to have any coherent worldview because after all, this world is in our home, right? We're just passing through. I, I joke, you know, the song, Jesus, Take the Wheel. I said this to my church. I said, um, yeah, take the wheel. You get out and lock yourself in the trunk because he should be driving the whole thing and he doesn't need to listen to you babble, Okay. <laughs> Having said that, I am convinced that the need of the hour, okay, the need of the hour, this is where it's going to get really fun. The need of the hour is the recovery of covenant. So you can write that in big letters if you want. Covenant. This is a churchy word. You've heard of covenant before. You know, we understand that Christ's blood, um, his blood that was poured out, we have a new covenant. Um, There was the covenant with Abraham and so forth in history and with David. And and that's good good and, and true. Those things are right. But it doesn't do justice to the framework that the Bible shows us as it pertains to covenant theology. Um, All those things, Davidic covenant, the new covenant, all those things are fruit on the covenantal tree. I want to get down to the roots. The Bible itself is a covenant document. A covenant is an agreement between two parties that fulfills some sort of outlined expectations. Okay? A covenant is an agreement between two parties, or more, as it were, but agreement between parties, two parties, that fulfills some outlined expectations. Okay? How many, raise your hand if, if you are married. Okay. I'm assuming when you walk to the altar to say, I do, like you didn't have, you know, maybe one expectation. You didn't walk up with none. You had preconceived ideas. Okay, this is what this is going to look like. We're going to raise kids, have 2.5 kids. You know, we're going to do this, this, this. You all had expectations. That's what covenant thinking does. There are stipulations. There are things involved just like in a marriage. So, so a covenant is an agreement between two parties that fulfills some outlined expectations. Though that doesn't explain everything about covenant, you get the idea. Um, <clears throat> marriage being the one you're more f- familiar with. But that's, but that's not all there is to this concept of covenant. When you think about God's relationship to the world, think about it. God in heaven, the creator of all things, and his relationship to the third rock from the sun. This world... What word or words would you use to describe that relationship? Some might say love. Uh, some might say missional or some derivative of the word mission. God's relationship to the earth, grace and mercy and peace and justice and there's a whole lot of churchy words, right? Biblical words. Others, maybe you don't know what to say. You're just here and you're happy. <clears throat> The answer to the question of God's relationship to the world is covenant. That's the word you should think of. That's the word you should um, use to describe God's relationship with the world. Covenant thinking is built within the fabric of all of Scripture, but it isn't just in Scripture. Covenant is the very structure of everything. Social ethics, all interpersonal relationships, 
And it's the lifeblood. Covenant is the lifeblood of God's relationship to the world. So when we think about the covenant Lord, we're talking about, this is John Frame's argument, brilliant theologian. I recommend his systematic theology over any other systematic theology, um, at least in terms of present authors. Uh, We're talking about um, God's authority, God's um, control and sustaining of creation. uh, And we're also talking about God's presence. Authority, presence, and you might say sustenance of the world. That's the covenant Lord. That's what he does with the world. He has authority over it. He sustains it, and he is present with it. He is distinct from it, but he's present with his creation. To use Peter Jones's language, the, the two worldviews are oneism and twoism. Don't type that in your computer. It doesn't know what to do with it. Oneism, twoism, Okay. Oneism believes that all there is to the natural world is natural stuff, materialism. That's it. We have dirt and earth and stuff, and that, that's all we have. Oneism. You might say one sphere. Nothing spiritual, nothing outside of that. <clears throat> Just the material world. Um, twoism, you guys are twoists. You didn't know that, did you? You are a twoist. That's a term of endearment not something derogatory. Twoism holds a distinction between God and the material world, okay? To to borrow from Cornelius Van Til. He was a professor at Westminster Theological Seminary. Any Van Tilians in here? You should all raise your hand. You should be a Van Tilian. Um, What Van Til would do is he would walk into the classroom at at Westminster. I think he, maybe he died in like 80, 81 or something like that. But he, he would uh, walk into the chalkboard and he would draw, and, and I'll, I'll help you so you can draw it in your notes. Um, he would draw one circle kind of at the top and he would put creator in it, right? Just a, you know, a good sized circle. And then underneath it would be a smaller circle with some space and he would put in it creature. So you have a bigger circle, creator, smaller circle, creature, and then he would draw two lines to connect them. Two, two lines just connecting the circles, and he would write beside those lines the word covenant. Covenant is the connection between the creator and the creation. This is part of what the Apostle Paul gets at in Romans 1 when he talks about the unregenerate who exchange the truth about God for a lie. And what do they do? They worship and serve the creation instead of the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. So when we understand this distinction, we, we won't fall trapped to the fall into the trap of paganism. Much of what passes today in high schools and colleges Honestly, it's pure paganism. Like, paganism is rampant on our colleges. Like, overwhelmingly, it's a, it's a flood of paganism thinking. There, there's no distinction in that worldview between God and, and creator. You know, and in fact, if, if you're in this little world and you want to believe in God, that's great. You know, just, he's made up in your head anyway, right? Because we all know, no, God exists. We all know that just the material world exists. So having said that... I mentioned this, the Bible is a covenant document. It's a document in which covenant is revealed and reality is understood. The world around you, the structures in place, all of it is connected through covenant. Covenant thinking is a fabric that goes through the entire tapestry of the Bible. 
God is a covenantal God. He has, he has revealed himself through covenant, through binding himself to his creation. And he continues to use covenant to establish his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. Now, I need to pause as we get <clears throat> close to the end of this session to introduce to you something that has changed my life. I am not exaggerating. It literally changed my life, how I live it, how I understand it, and how I engage the world around me. In 1987, <clears throat> 1987, I was five. Ray Sutton, Reverend Ray Sutton was working with ancient treaties, ancient treaties dating back to the time of the patriarchs. He was working particularly with the suzerain vassal treaties. I'll explain that in a second. And he noticed a pattern both in, in, in what they were composed of and what the Bible shows in its documents. Reformed theologians have talked about covenant for 500 years. John Calvin was the forerunner of helping establish covenant thinking. Um, but he was a man of his age, and we've learned a lot since, since him, and we can learn a lot from him still. But it wasn't really until Sutton pieced this aspect of Calvin's covenant thinking together with this other stuff, this other things that were happening in the world of Abraham and the patriarchs. I believe getting this model down will change your life. It will change how you engage the culture around you, or at least it should, okay? Ray Sutton's book, if you want to find it, you can get some used copies on Amazon. It's a shame. It's a shame that Jesus Calling is like the number one stinking book. Don't get me started. This book should be the number one selling book. It's called That You May Prosper, straight out of Deuteronomy. That You May Prosper. Sutton saw the five-point covenant model all throughout Scripture. In fact, the, the book of Deuteronomy itself is actually structured just like the ancient Near Eastern suzerain and vassal treaties. The suzerain was the, the conquering king, and the vassals were the conquered people. So whenever a king would conquer a nation, um, this structure was used to lay out the, the, the covenant relationship. Um, Sutton worked with Dr. Meredith Klein's f findings, and, and I believe Sutton struck gold. Um, the five-point model can be summarized with the word theos, which is the Greek word for God, T-H-E-O-S. I'll tell you what they are. You can write them down. The first one, the T, is transcendence. Do you remember what God said to Israel before he gave them the Ten Commandments? Right up and for the first commandment. So I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of what? The land of Egypt. He is the sovereign one. Transcendence means sovereignty. H is hierarchy. Hierarchy. The E stands for ethics. The O stands for oaths. We have transcendence, hierarchy, ethics, oaths, and the S is succession. And I'm not talking about California wanting to leave the union. Transcendence, hierarchy, ethics, oaths, succession. Those are the five points of the covenant as revealed very, very explicitly in Deuteronomy. The entire book follows this. It's, 
I'll be honest with you. When, when, I, when I started to read this, I, I just stopped. I thought, my goodness. I, I've always wondered, like, how is, okay, Jesus saved me. He, he's, he rose from the dead. I'm justified by faith alone. I got, I got all these parameters. But like, and yeah, he told us to go make disciples. What the heck does that mean? And how do you do it? When I understood covenant thinking, it kind of just pieced it together. It was like that final piece of the jigsaw puzzle, the one you couldn't find that was stuffed under the couch. The book of Matthew is actually patterned after this as well, and so are the Ten Commandments, and actually so is the book of Revelation. Any of these five points can be found in any passage of Scripture. It's truly amazing. So let's talk about each one. In the next session, my later one, I'll show you how it applies in various ways. First one, transcendence. Transcendence. This refers to ultimate and supreme sovereignty. Told you it's going to be a little heavy. Transcendence. This refers to ultimate and supreme sovereignty. So if someone asks you, you know, how sovereign is God? You say, yes. <laughs> God is the only ultimate, the only transcendent sovereign. He's distinct from his creation. That's why he's at the top of that um, Van Til's um, graph. Uh, he created everything. He sustains everything, right? I mean, imagine you're going to go to bed tonight and your heart's going to beat some 36,000 times and you didn't have to tell it to do that before you laid down to sleep. That's God's sovereignty. So all things owe their origin and purpose in the sovereignty of God. Everything Every proton, neutron, and electron, you, the chair you're in, this gymnasium, all of it owes its connection back to God's sovereignty. So, so he is distinct yet involved. That's the twoism, right? You're all twoists. That's what I want you to walk out of here with. I'm a twoist. I had no idea. When God gave his law treaty to Israel, when he brought them out of Egypt, he established his sovereignty as the conquering warrior king, right, the suzerain, who is the only sovereign. That's what that was. When, when Yahweh went down into Egypt, right, and, and I love it because it's like when you're picking on your kid brother and you're just, why are you hitting yourself? Why are you hitting yourself? That's God Pharaoh, right? Why are you hitting yourself? Oh, you want to harden your heart? I'll make your heart even more hard. And I will drop the hammer on you, and you will cry, and it'll be awesome. <laughs> but God is the only sovereign, the only sovereign. Everything and, every, everything and everyone is derived from that first point of the covenant. So you ask the question, who is, who is ultimately in charge of the universe? God. That's the first point. Second one, hierarchy. Hierarchy. This is God's hierarchical system of law enforcement. It's how God is set up to execute his plans. He's not just out there in transcendent world playing golf, much as I love golf. He has plans and a purpose. He does stuff. He has structures in place because he's a smart, smart God. So this is his, um, his system of law enforcement, his his execution of his plans. There's this established order underneath point one of the covenantal model. Man sits underneath God's authority. Man is God's covenantal man. All men are in relationship with God. Did you know that? Everyone is in relationship with God. We shouldn't say that. Like, are you in a relationship with God? 
Well, I don't know. Yes, you are. Everyone is. I don't care if you're Richard Dawkins. You are in a relationship with God. Just might not be a good one. What needs to be clear with regard to this point of the covenant is that man is God's agent for dominion in the world, and only when he is restored in Christ can he actually achieve it. What were Adam and Eve told to do in the garden? Work and keep. Build, do business, economics, um, trade with others, build iPhones. Just took us a few years to figure that out. That's what they were told to do, to build, to work, and keep. But only they lost it, and so only in Christ can you actually achieve it. Therefore, it is appropriate to say that Christ is the one who has been established as the hierarchical leader. He is the God-man in this part of the covenant. So said another way, Jesus Christ has been established as King of kings and Lord of lords, who, according to Matthew 28, has all authority in heaven and on what? The earth. People forget that. It's weird. And in this kingdom that he has is a mediatorial kingdom that will be turned over to the Father in accordance with 1 Corinthians 15 after, after Jesus destroys his enemies. God is sovereign. That's point one. Um, Jesus is king and we are in him. That's point two, hierarchy. The question is, who do we report to? Jesus. He's our commander in chief. He tells us what to do. We have our battle plans from him. Side note, <clears throat> Underneath that point, you can write these four spheres. There are four spheres of government that God has instituted in this world. One of them is self, self-government. You're, you're supposed to keep your stuff in order. <laughs> Tell that to my kids. Just clean my daughter's room. She's five. She has everything, literally everything. Not good. <laughs> Grandpa and Grandma. <laughs> Um, Self-government, family government, church government. Pastor Eric's going to talk about family church in the next session. Um, and then the fourth one is state government. I will emphasize the state later on, but just know that these are God's spheres of government underneath him. Third point, ethics. This is the law of the kingdom of God. Laws are the terms and conditions of the covenant Law establishes what the suzerain expects of the vassals. The king expects of the conquered people. When God gave his covenant law word, he was establishing his peace treaty with the world. We don't think of it that way. The law of God is a peace treaty, but that's really what it is. It's the terms and conditions of what it means to be in right relationship with God. You must be holy. Well, why? Because I am holy, God says. Doesn't save a man. The law cannot save a man. Only the gospel can do so. The law, the, the law and the gospel work together. They are friends. They are not enemies. The opposite of law is lawlessness, not grace. Okay? Stinking thinking on this issue. We should also note that the law of God is the only law, the only law, and it's the only true law in the universe. So any self-proclaimed despot of any kingdom of man who would subjugate other men under their supposed law are actually promoting lawlessness. It's like, here's the law of God, right? And then you go to D.C., check out the Museum of National Archives, or you go to some of the other places, the Capitol Building, and the law of, laws of men would fill this gym. Like, we're probably all in violation of some felony right now. But only God's law reigns supreme in God's covenant world. So what are the rules of the place? 
He's, he's sovereign. We got spheres and there's structure in it. What are the rules? The law of God. Fourth, oaths. <clears throat> These are God's covenant sanctions. You can write that in parentheses if you want next to oaths. Sanctions. About the only time you ever hear that word is when we're messing with Iran, right? President Obama considered sanctions against Iran this morning. It's like the only time you ever hear the word. Sanctions is a very biblical concept. An oath ratifies a treaty. It calls forth God's judgment. Remember Abraham and this freaky picture where, where he, God puts him to sleep and God splits these animals in half? It sounds like a terrible movie if you didn't have the context. But God walks through it, the flaming pot, right? And so that's an oath. That ratified the relationship, the treaty. With, notice, though, that Abraham, what was he doing? He was in la-la land. He did not walk through it. God took that oath upon himself. God would fulfill this. Man, he can't fulfill anything half the time. So that, all that calls forth God's judgment, which can either be blessings for obedience or cursings for violations. Um, covenant loyalty is the key. Okay, look this up later. You can write it down. Deuteronomy 28 and 29. We need to be preaching that a lot, okay? Deuteronomy 28, 29 is a great example. God lays out his sanctions against people and nations who will not submit to his law treaty. So a man who doesn't want the covenant, he's not in a position of neutrality, hanging out over there. He's a covenant breaker. Only the gospel takes a covenant breaker and makes him a covenant keeper. Only when the Spirit of God lights, writes that law treaty in our hearts can we actually experience the blessings of God. So that, that doesn't mean, however, that a Christian is, is free from any form of judgment in history. God will judge nations in the end, but he's also judging nations now in the present. And all of it depends on covenant faithfulness. Faith without works is what? It's dead. So what happens if the rules are kept or rules are broken, blessings, cursings. That's covenant life. Fifth, succession. This is the issue of time. Do you guys ever think about time outside of the fact that, well, there's never enough, it seems? What's your theology of time? It's a great question to ask over the dinner table. What's your theology of time? This is the last point of the covenant model. Um, has everything to do with where this whole thing is going. Where is it, where is it headed? Where is this relationship that we have going? Where, what's the ultimate end game? What, what's, what is your theology of time? God is the Lord in time, and in he's, God the Lord uses time to establish his kingdom. Ray Sutton calls it continuity in his book, but it's, it's the same idea. This is the issue, covenant renewal. You guys know whenever you gather for worship, you're renewing covenant every single week. Take communion, right? That's a covenant renewal ceremony. Um, <clears throat> we, we take it every week at our church. And, uh, you know, I, when we made that change, it was kind of, there were some objections. You know, it might get old. It might get old. Like, do you wake up to the, next per, the same person every day? Is that old? You better not say yes. <laughs> <laughs> Don't give me that. <laughs> Christ bled. You can partake of communion once a week. <laughs> so what's your theology of time? The covenant renewal. Uh, will there be a confirmation? Will, be, will there be a transfer of God's inheritance? In other words, who, who are the true heirs of the world? The children of the promise or the children of Satan? Will Satan inherit the earth? A lot of Christians think he will. 
Will Satan inherit the earth or will God's meek children inherit the earth? This flows out of point, one, point four because those who will not obey will be disinherited and displaced. So covenants, they can be dissolved. Covenant death is a real thing. Paul talks about that. A covenant death, for example, in a marriage, someone dies, the covenant's gone. So what's the plan for the future? Where's this thing heading? You guys, do you, have an, do you have an eschatology? Do you have a view of end times? Do you have a view of history? Where is this thing going? God's established kingdom on earth. I will recap those later and show you a little bit more <clears throat> why it's important. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna close and remind you what I just said. I promised you I'd do that. I wanted to get you thinking about worldview, define, defining what worldview is. I wanted to show you some of the problems we face, and I believe the answer is covenant. Let's pray. Father, we glorify you this evening. We thank you for this, this time where we could come and focus our attention and um, give of ourselves to you as we learn, as we grow. God, we want to be obedient to you. We want to see the nations discipled. We want this nation to be discipled. We want our neighbors to be discipled. And so help us, God. Help us to have courage and boldness. God, help us to get thrown out of places like the apostles. Help us to stand for something. So we ask your spirit's power in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to Setting the Record Straight. Join us on Facebook at the Reconstructionist Radio Discussion Group. And don't forget to visit reconstructionistradio.com to listen to all of our podcasts and to download our free audiobooks. The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network brings to you a complete lineup of podcasts where you will hear practical and tactical theology. Our desire is not simply that you consume our shows, but that you also live out your faith in every area of life. We can talk all day long about these things, but if we fail to put them into practice, then we fail as ambassadors of Jesus Christ, our King. Subscribe now to your favorite Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network shows, or you can subscribe to the Reconstructionist Radio Master Feed where all of the content we produce, including the audiobooks and audio articles, will pop up as soon as they are available. And don't forget to visit ReconstructionistRadio.com to volunteer as a narrator or to partner with this ministry financially. May the Holy Spirit stir you into action for Christ and His kingdom.